Chapter 1. Prologue. Part 2. The Collision Course, 1991-2003. Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1. By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Chapter 1. Prologue. Part 1. The Collision Course, 1991-2003. Modularity, Transformation, and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld By 1996, OOTW were consuming the equivalent of four of the Army's ten remaining divisions. The demands of preparing units to deploy, deploying them, and then recovering them to training proficiency for conventional combat required a three-to-one ratio of units committed to sustain one unit on deployment. When considering personnel, this ratio increased to five-to-one, given the number of individuals going through training or education programs at any given time. Though the 1990s operations tempo was much lower than the Army would experience in the wars following September 2001, it was nevertheless a difficult strain on a force that continued a strenuous regimen in which units spent months of each year at training centers honing their skills for high-intensity combat operations. To ease this pressure and generate more combat formations out of the existing force, Army leaders in the late 1990s began the process of moving away from a division-based structure in favor of modular combat brigades. With the Balkan experience in mind, Shinseki developed and fielded the first Interim Brigade Combat Teams, or IBCT, brigades optimized to provide numbers of boots on the ground and speed of deployment similar to that of light units, but with tactical mobility, firepower, and protection comparable to heavy units. After evaluating a series of options, the Army selected a variant of the Canadian LAV-3 to form the basis of the brigade and named the new vehicles Strikers. The IBCTs were meant to be relatively self-contained formations that could fight and sustain themselves independent of the division headquarters or support structures. They were meant to be modular, interchangeable formations that could be plugged into any higher division headquarters, not just the division to which they were organically assigned. Army planners drawing on the ideas of the RMA expected that future army brigades and divisions equipped with superior technology would be able to maintain situational awareness through passive technological means, rather than using traditional combined arms organizations to conduct continuous reconnaissance, fight for information, and develop the situation in close contact with enemy forces. Rumsfeld's arrival at the DOD in 2001 created a significant countercurrent to the plans and operating posture that had marked the Army of the 1990s. Rumsfeld believed in the full potential of new technologies to greatly accelerate the force development process, an idea at odds with Army leaders' evolutionary approach to transformation, which relied on the gradual integration of proven technologies rather than the quick integration of unproven ones. Cautious of not losing the legacy force capabilities, however, Army leaders wanted to test new technologies carefully to ensure they worked first and avoid, in the words of future Undersecretary of Defense Michael G. Vickers, trading away, quote, current capabilities, end quote, for, quote, future possibilities, end quote. Rumsfeld was also disinclined to continue the 1990s trend of employing the Army on a large scale in OOTW, following the lead of former President George W. Bush, who as a presidential candidate had criticized Clinton's use of the military for peacekeeping. 
During his January 2001 confirmation hearing, Rumsfeld told Congress, quote, I don't think it's necessarily true that the United States has to become a great peacekeeper, end quote, and suggested that peacekeeping missions could be the work of other nations. He later repeated this sentiment on nation-building when speaking about Afghanistan and the concerted effort to maintain a small force presence and, quote, not engage in what some call nation-building, end quote. Rumsfeld's way ahead centered not on people, but equipment, missile defense and the harnessing of technology to make smaller forces more lethal and deployable. The Iraqi Regime in the 1990s, page 11. As the U.S. Army became involved in numerous contingency operations around the globe and debated its structure, organization, and technology for a future of force projection overseas, the Iraqi regime was on a different trajectory altogether. For Saddam, the lessons of 1991 would be far different from those taken by his Western enemies. For reasons Saddam struggled to understand, the United States had decided to stop short of removing his weakened regime from power, despite the stunning conventional military victory it had just achieved. The existential threat to his regime, Saddam noted, had come not from the 100 hours of high-intensity combat against the U.S.-led coalition in Kuwait and the southern Iraqi desert, but from the popular uprising and chaos that had followed. For the next 12 years, Saddam would focus mainly on building the capabilities that would be needed to survive against internal threats and to deter the enemy Iranian regime, rather than those needed to fight an unwinnable war against the U.S. military. As the Ba'ath Party attempted to shore up its regime's legitimacy, it set in motion changes that would ravage Iraqi society and lay the groundwork for future conflict among Iraqis. The 1991 Iraqi Intifada for the coalition commanders who gathered at Safwan on the Iraqi-Kuwaiti border on March 3, 1991, the war was over. But for the Iraqi generals who walked away from the truce tent, the war was just beginning. On February 15th, then-President George H.W. Bush urged Iraqis to mount a popular uprising, telling a worldwide television audience that, quote, there is another way for the bloodshed to stop and that is for the Iraqi military and the Iraqi people to take matters into their own hands and force Saddam Hussein, the dictator, to step aside. End quote. As the Iraqi divisions in Kuwait collapsed, Iraqis did what Bush had suggested they do. Within days of the March 3rd ceasefire, Shia crowds and army deserters had overrun every major southern city and were fighting Ba'ath Party loyalists for control. Hoping to exploit the situation, Members of the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, or SCIRI, and the Badr Corps, twin Iraqi Shia groups created by the Iranian regime during the Iran-Iraq War, crossed the border from Iran to claim control of Basra, southern Iraq's largest city. Meanwhile, in northern Iraq, the Peshmerga troops of the Kurdistan Democratic Party, or KDP, and Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, or PUK, seized the major cities of the Kurdish north. The Kurdish parties aimed to create an independent Kurdish zone and inflict a blow in retaliation for the Ba'athist regime's onfall campaign of 1988, which had killed more than 100,000 Kurds and displaced a million more. By March 20th, the uprising had reached its high point, with most of Iraq's southern and Kurdish provinces in rebel hands. The uprising was short-lived. 
Republican Guard divisions that had escaped from Kuwait moved into rebel-held northern and southern cities, driving the lightly armed rebels from city centers. Their methods were rough, especially once it was clear American units would not intervene. Military helicopters that Schwarzkopf had permitted his Iraqi counterparts to use ostensibly for humanitarian purposes were turned against mutinous communities such as the Shia holy city of Karbala, where regime troops allegedly dropped sarin gas and strafed fleeing rebels and civilians. The regime's secret police executed thousands in the reoccupied cities and buried them in mass graves. The Mujahideen el-Khalq, or MEK, an Iranian opposition group led by Mariam and Masoud Rajavi and sponsored by Saddam, helped drive the KDP and PUK out of the northern cities and into the Kurdish mountains. In the south, hundreds of thousands of Shia fled into Iran or Iraq's vast marshes. In the north, more than a million Kurds fled toward Turkey or Iran. By mid-April, the regime had retaken all major cities, tens of thousands of Iraqis had been killed, and one in ten Iraqis had been driven from their homes. Although U.S. units on the ground near the southern Iraqi cities saw regime loyalists suppressing the rebellion, and although rebel leaders from Basra had appealed to U.S. combat units to come to their aid, U.S. leaders chose not to intervene a decision that allowed Saddam to remain in power and that created a generation of Iraqi Shia resentment against the United States. By summer 1991, the regime was carrying out large-scale reprisals. In the northern cities, the Ba'ath accelerated a decades-long effort to Arabize the most important mixed-ethnicity regions, expelling as many as 100,000 Kurds accused of supporting the rebellion and resettling Shia Arabs from southern Iraq to disputed areas such as Kirkuk. An even larger regime response took place in the south. The vast marsh regions of the lower Euphrates and Tigris valleys had been a safe haven for the Shia tribal rebels, but by 1992, the Ba'ath began draining the marshes by diverting the main channels of the rivers. By the late 1990s, 90% of the southern marshes had disappeared, forcing hundreds of thousands of marsh Arab tribesmen to migrate into the Shia slums of the south and Baghdad. The displacement ended a marsh Arab way of life that had existed for millennia and caused an ecological crisis across southern Iraq. To ensure against future uprisings, Saddam was sowing demographic chaos. The Islamicization of the Ba'ath and Deterioration of the Iraqi Army as the U.S. Army went through its post-Operation Desert Storm transformation, Saddam presided over a transformation of his own in Iraq, seeking new means to shore up his regime in the wake of the 1991 uprising, as well as a new ideological basis for his rule. Though Ba'athism was a secular, pan-Arab ideology, and though he had long suppressed Iraq's various Islamic movements, in 1993 Saddam decided to Islamicize his regime in a national faith campaign designed to invest his rule with religious legitimacy. The formerly secular leader encouraged the building of mosques, offered clerics state sponsorship, and claimed speciously that Ba'athism's founder, Michael Aflaq, a Syrian Christian, had converted to Islam on his deathbed in Baghdad. Saddam also clothed himself in religious imagery, adding Allah Akbar to the Iraqi flag and having Islamic scholars discover his descent from the Prophet Muhammad. Most significantly, though, 
Saddam sent thousands of Ba'athist military and intelligence officers into mosques and seminaries to undertake Islamic studies, especially from Salafi clerics whom Saddam considered less threatening than the Muslim Brotherhood. The result was a fusion of Ba'athists and Salafis whom Iraqi Islamists believed were to form an Islamic resistance if ever Saddam's regime were under assault again. Meanwhile, Saddam's vice president, Izzat Ibrahim al-Duri, created a similar fusion of Ba'athists and religious figures among the Sufi sect, known as Naqshbandis, whose largest following was in the upper Tigris region and Anbar. Even among the Shia, the Ba'athist regime encouraged Najaf-based Ayatollah Muhammad Sadiq al-Sadr to build a large popular following as long as Sadr agreed to align politically with the regime against Iran. Significant changes were underway among Iraq's military and security services as well. The 60 Iraqi divisions that the Third Army had eviscerated in Kuwait and southern Iraq were never fully reconstituted. The post-1991 Iraqi army shrank to five corps of 18 divisions, with an additional two corps of the Republican Guard. In December 1995, senior Iraqi military leaders, including Republican Guard Commander Lieutenant General Rod Hamdani, met with Saddam to recommend new doctrines and organizations based on the lessons drawn from the 1991 war. Because the U.S. military, with its technological advantages, could destroy any large formations, Hamdani observed there was no point in building them. Instead, the Iraqis should eschew armored forces in favor of light infantry that would disperse and offer guerrilla resistance against an invading force. Saddam reportedly rejected the suggestion, asserting that had his army not possessed heavy forces, Iraq would not have emerged, quote, victorious, end quote, from the 1991 war. Officially, the army would retain its pre-1991 doctrine and armaments. Nevertheless, the Iraqi security sector changed dramatically after 1995. Whereas the Iraqi military of the 1980s was dominated by a huge regular army and the Republican Guard, the Iraqi regime of the 1990s began a proliferation of paramilitary organizations affiliated with the Ba'ath Party. These paramilitaries drew resources and recruits away from the regular military, whose large formations had already been starved of resources by the post-war sanctions. Most notably, Saddam's eldest and unstable son Uday commanded the Fedayeen Saddam, a Ba'athist militia with as many as 40,000 members. Probably most Fedayeen were Sunnis, but a large number were Shia recruited from lower-class neighborhoods in Baghdad's Saddam City, later renamed Sadr City in 2003, and other areas where jobs were scarce. The Iraqi Resistance to Saddam the regime's mid-1990s restructuring coincided with a series of internal challenges to Saddam's rule. The most prominent came from within his own family. In August 1995, Saddam's son-in-law and kinsman Hussein Kamal al-Majid defected from his senior post overseeing Iraq's Weapons of Mass Destruction, or WMD, programs, and set himself up in opposition to Saddam in Jordan. Just six months later, however, Saddam lured Hussein Kamal back to Baghdad with a promise of amnesty, only to immediately execute him for treason. Other challenges came from within Ba'athist and Sunni tribal networks that had once been Saddam loyalists. After the 1991 uprising, Saddam hoped to bolster his regime by empowering Iraq's tribes, just as he had empowered its Islamists. He reversed the long-standing Ba'athist policy of suppressing tribal identity and restored the power of tribal sheikhs, 
even allowing the arming of tribal militias with heavy weapons meant to be used against invaders or insurgents if a 1991-type crisis should recur. But the pro-tribal policy created new dangers as well. In May 1995, the Albu Nimer tribe, part of Anbar's large Dulaim tribal confederation, rose in revolt in Ramadi after the regime executed three senior Dulaimi generals who had criticized Uday. The Special Republican Guard quickly suppressed the uprising, but the incident demonstrated Ramadi's restiveness and the fractures between Anbaris and the Baathist regime. Nor was Saddam's support within the Baath party fully assured. In June 1996, Saddam's intelligence apparatus uncovered a coup plot involving more than 100 officers coordinated by former Iraqi general Mohammad Shahwani, a Sunni Turkoman from northern Iraq who lost three sons among the 85 Iraqis executed for their roles in the conspiracy. Others among Saddam's opponents took advantage of his faith campaign to mobilize against the regime. The Salafi networks that Saddam had encouraged contained not just Baathists sent for religious indoctrination, but also pure Salafis opposed to secular states in the Muslim world. In the late 1990s, the most militant of the pure Salafis began a low-level terrorist campaign against the Baath party, carrying out intermittent attacks against Baathist targets. The emergence of this threat led Saddam's half-brother and intelligence chief Barzan al-Tikriti to warn Saddam in 2000 that the Islamist groups the regime was supporting would eventually try to topple the Ba'ath. Finally, from their bases inside Iran, Badr Corps members conducted cross-border operations into Iraq throughout the 1990s. Formed by the Iranian regime during the Iran-Iraq War, the Badr Corps was comprised of Iraqi prisoners of war who had defected to Iran, as well as Iraqi refugees who had fled to Iran. The Badr Corps and affiliates, such as the shadowy Shaibani network, sought to gather intelligence and carry out acts of sabotage and subversion in the Shia South, intending to lay the groundwork for an eventual revolt. The Iranian regime directly sponsored these activities through the Quds Force of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which by 1998 came under the command of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. The Continuing U.S.-Iraq Confrontation, 1991-2000 Page 15 in April 1991, a contingent of U.S. Marines and a single U.S. Army Brigade in Kuwait, the 1st Brigade of the 3rd Armored Division, covered the redeployment of the 500,000-strong coalition as it departed the Persian Gulf Theater. In June, the lone Army Brigade was replaced by 3,600 troops of the Germany-based 11th Armored Cavalry, commanded by Colonel Andrew J. Basevich. The cavalry unit initiated a rotational mission to deter any future aggression by Saddam against Kuwait that would last more than a decade and take place alongside an intermittent escalation of U.S.-Iraq tensions into warfare. The deterrence mission started on a somber note for Basevich and his 11th Armored Cavalry when their ammunition containers exploded at Camp Doha, Kuwait on July 11, 1991, killing three soldiers and wounding 55 more, while destroying or damaging four M1A1 tanks and 98 other vehicles. Compared with the losses sustained by the force during Operation Desert Storm, these post-war losses signified that the contingency mission of deterring Iraqi aggression would lack the luster and clear sense of success that characterized the Lightning Ground Campaign of February to March 1991. Operation Provide Comfort 
The rapid redeployment of coalition troops from Kuwait after Operation Desert Storm was not the end of U.S. involvement on the ground inside Iraq. As Saddam's troops quelled the northern uprising in April 1991, more than a half million Kurdish refugees entered Turkey, seeking safety from the Iraqi regime's crackdown. Hundreds of thousands more migrated toward improvised camps near the mountainous border. Hundreds died each day of exposure and starvation. Unlike the Shia rebellion in the south, the Kurdish plight gained the attention of Western capitals and the global media, prompting UN intervention to alleviate the humanitarian crisis. The resulting operation, Provide Comfort, began with airdrops of humanitarian supplies, but soon expanded to include ground forces to safeguard the refugee population. In early April 1991, a small NATO force under U.S. Army Major General J.M. Garner carved out an enclave in the border zone to facilitate the safe return of the Kurds to Iraq. Garner's multinational command included an airborne infantry battalion under Lieutenant Colonel John P. Abizade and the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit, or MEU, under Colonel James L. Jones, Jr., which together maneuvered inside Iraq to force an Iraqi army corps to withdraw from the Kurdish zone and clear the way for Kurdish refugees to return home. With the humanitarian mission completed, U.S. ground forces left northern Iraq in July 1991, but NATO military operations continued in the air. As part of Operation Provide Comfort, the United States established a no-fly zone, later named Operation Northern Watch, above the 36th parallel in northern Iraq to protect the population from the worst excesses of Saddam's regime. A matching no-fly zone, dubbed Operation Southern Watch, covered much of southern Iraq. These no-fly zones were part of a low-intensity conflict lasting more than a decade between the United States and Iraq. This state of affairs that military historian Richard Swain called, quote, neither war nor not war, end quote, would continue until 2003. Saddam and the Clinton Administration Within two years of Operation Desert Storm's end, Saddam began to show that he was unafraid of renewing some measure of hostilities with the United States. He also demonstrated that his destabilizing reach still extended beyond Iraq's borders. In April 1993, the United States foiled a plot by Saddam's intelligence officers to assassinate former President Bush during his visit to Kuwait. When the plot became known, Clinton ordered punitive missile strikes against Iraqi intelligence buildings in Baghdad. In late 1994, the U.S.-Iraqi confrontation intensified further when the Iraqi regime ceased cooperation with U.N. weapons inspectors and deployed two Republican Guard divisions menacingly close to the Kuwaiti border. In early October, Clinton ordered the 1st Brigade, 24th Infantry Division, mechanized, and a sizable U.S.-U.K. contingent of air and naval forces to Kuwait to deter any Iraqi incursion. Deploying by air, the U.S. Brigade was able to fall in on pre-positioned equipment in Kuwait in less than a week, demonstrating a power projection capability the United States had lacked in the region before 1991. The Iraqi divisions withdrew from the border zone by the end of October, but thereafter U.S. troops rotated to Kuwait in a continuation of a series of exercises known as Intrinsic Action, which, by 1999, involved the permanent stationing of a brigade-sized contingent in the country. Meanwhile, the Iraqi regime closely watched the United States' multiplying OOTW. As U.S. troops withdrew from Mogadishu, Saddam took to heart what he believed was the Somalia expedition's chief lesson, 
that America would not bear military casualties and that U.S. troops, once bloodied in battle, would abandon the field. This judgment became a key element of Saddam's strategic thinking, so much so that on the eve of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq nine years later, he would distribute copies of author Mark Bowden's Black Hawk Down to his commanders. The Kurdish Civil War and Operation Desert Fox Operation Provide Comfort prevented the Iraqi regime from pursuing the KDP and PUK rebels of March to April 1991 into the mountains of Iraqi Kurdistan. As a result, by the time fighting between Kurdish Peshmerga and Iraqi troops ceased in October 1991, NATO operations had essentially created an autonomous Kurdish zone beyond Baghdad's control. A green line separated this zone from Arab Iraq, beyond which NATO ground troops and aircraft deterred the advancement of Saddam's forces. In the new autonomous zone, the KDP and PUK began to administer rival Kurdish statelets, where several million Kurds lived independently for the first time in modern Iraqi history. While the U.S. 1st Armored Division carried out its NATO peacekeeping mission among the Bosnian ethnic groups in 1996, the Iraqi regime began to encroach upon the autonomous Kurdish zone from which Garner, Abizaid, and Jones had expelled Iraqi troops in 1991. The Western powers that had enabled the Kurdish parties to establish self-governing statelets were surprised when, in August 1996, the Kurds themselves invited Saddam's forces back across the Green Line. A dispute over revenues from smuggled oil escalated into a Kurdish civil war between Masoud Barzani's KDP and Jalal Talabani's PUK, and with the backing of the Iranian regime, the latter was able to drive Barzani and the KDP out of Erbil. Faced with impending defeat, Barzani and the KDP turned to Saddam for help, and soon a joint KDP-Iraqi offensive pushed Talabani's forces out of Erbil toward the mountainous Iranian border, where the Iranian regime allowed the PUK leader and his Peshmerga to shelter and survive the onslaught. As Saddam's Republican Guard units prepared to advance on Talabani's stronghold of Sulaimaniyah, U.S. forces in the Persian Gulf responded to Saddam's violation of the UN-protected Green Line by launching cruise missile strikes against Iraqi air defense targets in southern Iraq on September 3, 1996, in Operation Desert Strike. Shortly after the airstrikes, Iraqi troops withdrew to their positions on the Green Line, leaving Barzani in control of the Kurdish capital. The airstrikes of September 1996 were part of worsening tensions between the West and Saddam's regime. In June 1996, UN weapons inspectors had destroyed a germ warfare facility in the desert 60 kilometers from Baghdad, but they frequently were prevented from inspecting other suspected Iraqi WMD sites. By February 1998, a frustrated Clinton pressed Congress and U.S. allies to do more to curb the Iraqi regime's behavior, citing Saddam's suspected WMD programs and his failure to comply with numerous U.N. resolutions as a threat to the region. In October 1998, Congress passed the Iraq Liberation Act, allocating $97 million for Iraqi opposition groups. Just weeks after the act's passage, the UN confrontation with Saddam escalated into a crisis when the regime ceased all cooperation with UN weapons inspectors, forcing the inspection teams to depart Iraq on December 15, 1998. Within hours, US and UK forces launched Operation Desert Fox, which combined 600 sorties and 400 cruise missile strikes in a 70-hour air offensive against regime targets throughout the country. 
In the smoldering U.S.-Iraqi conflict, the late 1998 confrontation constituted a significant flare-up in both military and political terms. Following Operation Desert Fox, Iraqi air defense systems became more aggressive against Western aircraft enforcing the no-fly zones, prompting the United States and Great Britain to increase their sorties against Iraqi targets. In 2002, Iraqi air defenders attacked coalition aircraft on 500 occasions, prompting 90 coalition airstrikes in response. Patrolling the contested northern and southern no-fly zones eventually involved as many as 200 aircraft and 7,500 airmen on a daily basis. The increased pressure from the Western Air Forces led the Iraqi army to adopt tactics it had developed after the 1991 war to protect itself from enemy airstrikes. The highest-value Iraqi assets, such as air defense units, were being repositioned continually to different parts of the country to evade tracking by Western satellites, going to near-random locations on an unpredictable schedule. Despite the chaos caused by the constant movement of tactical formations, however, the Iraqi army managed to provision its units without interruption, demonstrating a robust combat service support capability even in remote areas. The most actively repositioned units learned to maintain three command posts at once, often widely distant from one another, and to maintain weapons and ammunition stocks in even more locations, leading to the gradual saturation of Iraqi territory with vast stores of munitions. On the political level, the confrontation with the Iraqi regime that culminated in Operation Desert Fox changed U.S. policy toward Iraq from containment to regime change, a change Clinton announced on December 18, 1998. The Clinton administration, however, showed little inclination to take direct action to implement the new policy. Rather than direct action, the act opened the way for official U.S. sponsorship of such groups as the Iraqi National Congress of Ahmad Chalabi, the Iraqi National Accord of Ayat Alawi, and the Kurdish parties, with the U.S. side of the relationship eventually to be managed by Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Ryan Crocker. Sanctions and Internal Unrest By 1999, the international sanctions that had been in place against Iraq for eight years had profoundly affected the Iraqi state and Iraqi society, though not in ways that restrained the Ba'athist regime's destabilizing activities as the Western powers had hoped they would. The sanctions had prevented Iraqis from modernizing so that Iraq's institutions generally operated with the unimproved infrastructure and technology they had acquired in the 1970s. Much of Iraq's national infrastructure had been damaged in the air campaign of the 1991 war as well, one estimate put the total damage at $262 billion, and the regime had been slow to reconstruct after the war as international sanctions took effect. The sanctioned Iraqi state lacked the means to maintain even the oil sector that provided almost the entirety of the state's revenues so that a country that had appeared wealthy and modern in the 1970s looked blighted and poor by the late 1990s. The Iraqi education system that had led the Arab world since the 1950s, already seriously strained during the Iran-Iraq war, broke down under the weight of the sanctions. The population's literacy rate fell, and the country's human capital began to wither. Iraqi professionals, such as engineers and doctors, were isolated from international counterparts and could no longer keep up with advances in their fields. Iraq's social fabric suffered as well. Its middle classes were hard hit by inflation and the shrinking of the economy, so that many educated Iraqis left the country, creating a brain drain that exacerbated all other problems. 
The state and society also bore the burden of a large number of orphans and widows created by successive wars, so that Iraqi cities contained millions of poor, quasi-literate youth. Under sanctions, Iraq's economic shortages created some perverse incentives. Government ministries that had dispersed large oil-funded budgets in the 1970s tended to hoard resources rather than distribute them in the 1990s, and the state's provision of services decayed badly. With the licit economy nearly broken, Iraqis of all kinds, including the country's many civil servants, participated in the robust black market trade with Iraq's neighbors. This was especially true with Syria, where Saddam's regime encouraged the smuggling of Iraqi oil and other commodities in order to generate illicit revenues. The Iraqi population of the 1990s came to rely increasingly on the state to provide a subsistence level of food and electricity, with the former provided by the Iraqi Ministry of Trade under the supervision of the UN in the Oil for Food program. Quote, we are in the process of destroying an entire society. It is as simple and terrifying as that, end quote, observed Dennis J. Halliday, UN Humanitarian Coordinator for Iraq, on the effect of the sanctions in 1998. In retrospect, the sanctions appear to have increased Saddam's power inside Iraq by making the population dependent on his distribution of increasingly limited basic services, as the standard of living of the Iraqi middle class collapsed. Due to these underappreciated economic and social effects, the nation the U.S. military would occupy in 2003 was far more destitute and ravaged than was generally understood. It was against this backdrop that the Iraqi regime came into conflict with the popular religious movement led by the Najaf-based Ayatollah Muhammad Sadiq al-Sadr, father of Muqtada Sadr, and the preferred spiritual guide of millions of Shia. The Ba'ath had viewed the elder Sadr as a useful Arab counterweight to the cleric-led Iranian regime during the Iran-Iraq War and the early 1990s. By the late 1990s, however, Sadr was an increasingly vocal critic of the Ba'ath. In February 1999, gunmen presumed to be acting for the regime killed Sadiq Sadr and two of his sons in Najaf. In the days following the assassination, Sadr's followers exploded in rage against the Ba'ath across the south and in Saddam City, the Baghdad district later known as Sadr City. The Baghdad uprising reportedly grew intense enough to require the regime to use military units to suppress it, while fighting in Basra ended with the regime's execution of perhaps hundreds of Sadrist rebels. Within weeks, the Sadrists had succumbed to the Ba'athist counterattack, but not before mounting the most extensive resistance to the regime since the 1991 Intifada and proving they were a force with which to be reckoned. The CENTCOM Theater Posture As the Clinton administration's policy shifted to regime change in Iraq, the Third Army, as the army component of CENTCOM, expanded its footprint in the Persian Gulf region to prepare for any future ground operation against Saddam's regime. The same month the Iraq Liberation Act was signed into law, Third Army Commander Tommy Franks declared that all was in place to, quote, deploy, command, control, and support major army forces to deter Iraqi adventurism, end quote, with pre-positioned equipment and a pre-deployed command and control node. This would ensure that, in the event of hostilities, U.S. forces would not lose the, quote, race for Kuwait, end quote. Third Army had prepositioned a heavy division's worth of equipment in Kuwait and Doha, Qatar, along with an extensive infrastructure to deliver the large quantities of fuel required to sustain operations deep into Iraq. 
Meanwhile, CENTCOM and Third Army regularly conducted war games that tested the existing war plans. One such war game revealed the myriad difficulties that could follow any campaign to remove Saddam and his regime. Under CENTCOM Commander General Anthony C. Zinni, CENTCOM planners conducted Exercise Desert Crossing in spring 1999 to examine the security, political, social, and economic challenges that might ensue if the regime in Baghdad collapsed under the pressure of an assault such as Operation Desert Fox. Zinni, no stranger to Iraq after having participated in Operation Provide Comfort, received unsettling findings from Desert Crossing. Political and military planning for an invasion and post-Saddam Iraq should begin immediately, Zinni's planners judged, because of the, quote, contentious positions that must be reconciled and managed, end quote. An intervention in Iraq would be, quote, costly in terms of casualties and resources, end quote, they concluded, adding, quote, regime change may not bring stability, end quote, because of factors including hostile neighbors, quote, fragmentation along religious and or ethnic lines, and chaos created by rival forces bidding for power. End quote. Exercise Desert Crossing also recognized the dearth of information about what was actually happening in Iraq and recommended that efforts begin immediately to engage, or at least prepare to engage, key Kurdish and tribal leaders. Exercise Desert Crossing outlined several criteria for a successful mission. Elimination of WMD, a restructured Iraqi army, a stable and growing oil economy, and an Iraqi government that would observe international obligations and norms, but would not necessarily be a democracy, though the emergence of another dictator, Zinni's officers noted, would be an, quote, unspinnable contradiction, end quote. Oil revenue might be one way of paying for liberation, but there was the matter of Iraqi debt acquired during the 1990-1991 war, and stability in Iraq would depend on the successor state's economic viability in any case. Regional powers were unlikely to support an enduring American presence in Iraq, CENTCOM planners judged, but if the United States had to return to Iraq, an extended presence was precisely what they predicted would be required. The outcome of a U.S. intervention would probably be a Bosnia scenario, they told Zinni, under which a 10-year U.S. military occupation was not unlikely. The Post-9-11 Environment Page 20 For the George W. Bush administration, the attacks of September 11, 2001, or 9-11, lent urgency to the problem of the long conflict with Saddam. Al-Qaeda's demonstration of the potency of state-sponsored terror networks, along with some U.S. leaders' unsubstantiated suspicion that Saddam somehow had been involved in the attacks, meant that Saddam's removal changed overnight from a notional U.S. policy goal to a security imperative for the Bush administration. See Chapter 2. The subsequent surprisingly brief campaign to topple the Taliban in Afghanistan had a profound impact on U.S. decision-makers as well. The apparent success of a tiny footprint of U.S. forces, mainly special operations forces, working with indigenous Afghan fighters from the Northern Alliance, appeared to some in the U.S. national security apparatus, especially those who already espoused RMA, to point the way toward a similar method by which Saddam might be toppled with far less cost and trouble than the Clinton administration or CENTCOM's desert crossing had assumed. In other words, the experience of the 9-11 attacks and the weeks that followed them indicated to some U.S. leaders that the removal of Saddam was not only an immediate necessity, but also an easy prospect, a dramatic change from the outlook of the 1990s. 
Back in Baghdad, for reasons well documented by the Iraqi Perspectives Project and other engagements with former Ba'athist regime insiders, the 9-11 attacks and the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan made little impact on Saddam's strategic calculus. He continued to harbor a greater fear of an internal Iraqi uprising than of an attack by the United States, and remained convinced that he had to maintain the fiction of possessing WMD in order to deter regional enemies, especially Iran. Saddam took from the Afghanistan example only those points that reinforced his assumptions about the United States, including his overarching judgment that the United States would never mount a large-scale land invasion to remove him from power, just as the United States had declined to do against the Taliban, relying largely on indigenous forces instead. Nor did the demonstration of U.S. military technology make an impact on the Iraqi army's operating concepts. Saddam did not recognize that the U.S. will to use force to remove him had fundamentally changed after 9-11, and as a result, he would fail to allow his military leaders to make professionally sound plans to resist a U.S. invasion. The invasion of Afghanistan had a much more significant impact on other American adversaries. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who had commanded a group of Arab mujahideen in Afghanistan, led his organization into Iran as the United States and its Afghan allies toppled the Taliban in late 2001, proceeding from there to Iraqi Kurdistan. There they sheltered in a small enclave near Halabja, controlled by Ansar al-Islam, a militant group comprised of mainly Kurdish Islamists who had fought in Afghanistan and were actively fighting against local PUK Peshmerga. From his Iraqi sanctuary, Zarqawi began to organize his Tahweed wal-Jihad terrorist group to carry out attacks in the region, including the 2002 assassination of U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID official, Lawrence M. Foley Sr. in Jordan, and to look for opportunities to expand his jihad. On the eve of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the U.S. Army was much decreased from its Cold War size while sustaining a high tempo of stability operations around the world. Defense thinkers concluded that Operation Desert Storm marked a revolution in the nature of war, after which technology would enable the U.S. military to defeat any enemy with a relatively small force. The U.S. military of the 1990s, writ large, had developed a low tolerance both for casualties and for mistakes by tactical commanders. As it reduced its combat formations, the Army had outsourced much of its logistical services, including for contingency operations, on which it had become accustomed to deploying in a somewhat non-expeditionary posture with large base camps and amenities. As its involvement in stability operations mounted, the Army found its real-world activities at odds with its doctrinal emphases, including the previous assumption that OOTW were a lesser-included capability for forces that were trained and ready for major combat operations. There also lingered in many army quarters the sense that OOTW were extraneous, if not detrimental, to the army's core mission. Throughout the 1990s, the army had evolved from a static, Europe-focused force to one accustomed to deploying in contingency operations worldwide, though it continued to judge its commanders mainly by their success in high-intensity conflict war games and training exercises, even as their units became increasingly involved in low-intensity conflicts in the real world. In Haiti, Bosnia, and Kosovo, the U.S. military had acquired the assumption that the cessation of hostilities in a conflict would lead naturally to a peacekeeping-type mission by an international force. After 9-11, many defense leaders believed the brief campaign in Afghanistan seemed to validate the RMA, and that meant that even more could be done with fewer U.S. forces. 
Meanwhile, on the eve of the 2003 war, the Iraqi regime remained focused on internal threats to Ba'athist rule, fixed in its assumption that the external threat posed by the United States was not an existential one. However, even if Saddam and his regime had fully recognized the gathering threat, they had little with which to resist it, having hollowed out the conventional Iraqi military of 1991 and replacing it with numerous militias whose raison d'etre was to preserve the regime against insurgency. Within the regime itself, the secular Arab socialism of the Ba'ath was replaced by a strange fusion of Ba'athists and Islamists, mirrored outside the regime by a seething Shia Islamist mass movement organized by underground leaders with links to the Iranian regime and its long-standing militant networks. Across Iraq, the country's infrastructure was in shambles, with state institutions devastated by the combined effect of sanctions and the rampant corruption the regime encouraged in response to them. The country's social fabric was frayed as well, with the middle class sinking into poverty and social divides among sects and ethnic groups deepening. Iraq was a country with a regime and population little aware of the changes about to be thrust on them. End of Chapter 1 Prologue Part 2 The Collision Course 1991-2003 Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin 2021.